Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115. That's where we will be camping out for the sermon this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Christian Cunningham. I have the wonderful privilege of serving as the student ministries director here and am tremendously thankful to the elders for allowing me to uh, have a pretty regular time in the pulpit to preach before you. Um, it's a wonderful gift and privilege. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back and an usher will hand them out to you. Uh, please raise your hand and we will get a Bible to you um, and as we read out of Psalm 115 this morning. John Calvin says in his famous Institutes for the Christian Religion that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Throughout scripture, we see the dangers of idolatry warned against. We saw it read in Jeff's scripture reading from Deuteronomy 30. And even the prophets will cite idolatry as the primary reason why Israel ended up in exile. If Calvin is right and that we are a perpetual factory of idols, then we today have the same problems that Israel did. However, if I asked around Flagstaff in the United States as a whole, if you had a problem with idols and idol worship, they'd probably say, no, what are you talking about? We don't uh, take a piece of gold and form it into a cow or something and bow down and worship it. But we are no different, and we use different mediums. We take these same two hands, and wherever we put them, we are prone to making an idol out of it. And so Psalm 115 reveals that same truth to us and reminds us of how to uproot these idols out of our lives. Let's read Psalm 115 together, and then we will pray and see how this psalm is organized. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless all those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do they go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled 
before you this morning, knowing that we don't give you glory the way you deserve, but we give glory to our own names. We give glory to ourselves, give glory to idols, but not to you. So Lord, help us this morning see and savor your son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel, knowing that it is the only cure to idolatry. Lord, I pray for Dave and Andy as they are homesick right now and their families. I ask that you would take care of them and help them. Let our church surround them in love and grace. And Lord, as I speak this morning in the sermon, let the Holy Spirit convict those that need to be convicted and comfort those that need to be comforted. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So as some of you remember from my Psalm 119 sermon series, I have a particular propensity to see a chiastic structure in every psalm. And if you don't know what that is, a chiastic structure is essentially a mirrored parallelism where the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm correspond to each other and work towards the middle. So I see this text breaking into six stanzas, verses 1 through 3 and verses 16 through 18 correspond to each other, where God first glorifies himself in verses 1 through 3, and then at the end we praise or give glory to God in verses 16 through 18. In verses 4 through 8, we see the work of man's hands being idols, and then verses 14 through 15, we see the work of God's hands being creation. And then the center of our chiastic structure, verses 9 through 13, are two sides of the same coin where we are called to trust in God and receive blessing from God in those portions. Because these portions of the chiasm mutually interpret each other, we'll take them one at a time together for our outline. So this brings us to our main point. God is worthy of our trust because he keeps his covenant because he satisfies our hearts and because he blesses his people. God is worthy of our trust because he keeps his covenant, he satisfies our hearts, and he blesses this people, his people. This whole psalm centers around the idea of where you put your ultimate trust. Do you put your trust in idols that we make with our own hands? Or do you put your trust in God as our help and shield? Each day, we need to ask ourselves, am I putting my trust in idols or in God? And this sermon is a petition and a plea to put away worthless, vain idols and put your ultimate trust in God. This brings us to our first main point then. God is worthy of our trust because he keeps his covenant. This is verses 1 through 3 and 16 through 18. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So this psalm begins with a petition to trust in the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. 
and it gives us a clear description of who God is. And I think this implicitly gives us the cure to idols. Have a right view of God. Have a right understanding of who God is. And the psalmist's description of God finds itself in three words. Glory, steadfast love, and faithfulness. So the first word, glory, implies a heaviness, a weight to our understanding of God. When we're asking about God's glory, we're asking about the infinite beauty of God, his nature, his essence, who he is. And in this text, the psalmist ties God's glory to two things. First, his name. Give your name glory, Yahweh. So first we have the name of God, Yahweh, and secondly, he gives glory by his way, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. In other words, because of God's name, he receives glory, and in that special name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, it's tied to the special covenant relationship that Israel had with God. Only Israel could call God Yahweh. And also, this steadfast love and faithfulness is tied to God's ways and an intimate relationship that Israel had with his people. But let's press this point further. The word in Hebrew for steadfast love is chesed, and faithfulness is emeth. And these are a common word pair all throughout the Old Testament. By way of illustration, these Hebrew word pairs are a rough correspondence to compound words in English. The reason I draw this out is because just like the word bullfrog doesn't connotate in our minds a hairy frog with horns on it, steadfast love and faithfulness shouldn't be taken apart and studied in isolation. They need to be studied together as one new concept created. So when you see steadfast love and faithfulness in your Bibles, it creates the new concept of covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. So a paraphrase for verse one could be, not to us, Yahweh, not to us, to your name give glory for your devoted covenant love. In other words, this steadfast love and faithfulness is tied to God's covenant relationship with his people. So the name of Yahweh is covenantal. His word pair that he gives here is tied to covenant. And these three nouns, glory, steadfast love, and faithfulness, and the name and way of Yahweh, are not isolated to Psalm 115.1, but find their origins in what some call the central text of the Old Testament. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the context of Exodus 34, Moses asks God, show me your glory. And God reveals his glory through his name, Yahweh, and his way, steadfast love, and faithfulness. And the broader context of Exodus is establishing the covenant with Israel. 
So Psalm 115 is designed to be read in light of Exodus 34 and show that God is glorious and unique above all other gods in a unique contrast to idols. Idols don't show steadfast love and faithfulness like God does. Idols don't forgive iniquity and sin like God does. But we'll see that in the next point. So this glorious vision of God is our bedrock hope. If you're not a Christian and you've uh, stumbled into church this morning investigating the claims of Christ, God's name and way reveal that he will by no means clear the guilty. The only way to move out of the guilt you deserve incurred by your sin of worshiping false gods is to put your trust in God, supremely revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. If you are a Christian this morning, Intimately tied to God's name and way is his delight to forgive us. In verse 7, it says, He keeps steadfast love for thousands, and that thousands implies thousands of generations, as opposed to his wrath, which is only to the third and fourth generation. God delights to forgive you and shows a beautiful, loving, forgiving grace upon you and your sin, and that is our comfort. We'll see in just a moment that idolatry can never comfort us the way God can and does. Idols constantly demand a sacrifice, but Jesus was the sacrifice for us. This is why we can have bedrock assurance. God's glory and his name and his ways both show the overflow of grace and mercy to the sinner. The psalmist continues this glorious vision of God in verses two through three, where he asks a question and gives an answer. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So I think the context of this psalm is when Israel was suffering in exile. And they probably received the question very often, where is your God? And in the Hebrew, it actually says, where is their God now? As if to say, he was there with them in the beginning, but now he's not faithful to keep his promises, and that's why you're in exile under us. But verse 3 gives the answer. I'll tell you where my God is. He's in the heavens, doing all that he pleases. Well, what does God please to do? He pleases to show steadfast love and faithfulness. Like it says in verse 1. The answer is God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And if you are in the covenant community, have put your faith and trust in Jesus... All that God pleases to do is show you grace in your sin with love and kindness. If you are not in the covenant, God does show his wrath against sin, and he does all that he pleases. So this first stanza reveals that God is trustworthy even in difficult circumstances and trials. When we would often turn to idols, we should turn to the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. Will idols do this for you? Are they trustworthy in trials? Well, this brings us to the conclusion of the psalm in verses 16 through 18. Let's read the text again. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do they those who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. 
When Moses saw this great and glorious vision of God in Exodus 34, he bowed down in worship. And our response to this great and glorious vision of God in verses 1 through 3, push us to bow on our knees and worship God forever. In contrast to the wicked who question God in verse 2 and the dead who do not praise God, we are called to praise the Lord. And this section in the Psalms are often called the Hallelujah Psalms because they are riddled with the Hebrew phrase, Hallelujah, praise God. Turn with me to Psalm 111, verse 1. It says, praise the Lord, Hallelujah. Psalm 112, verse 1, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Psalm 113, verse 1, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Verse 9, praise the Lord. In our text, Psalm 115, verse 18, praise the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 19, praise the Lord. Psalm 117, in verse 1 and verse 2, praise the Lord. Say it with me, church. Praise the Lord. He is a great and glorious God. Praise him for his steadfast love and for his mercy toward us. We can trust in Yahweh over anything else in life, and that is the reason to shout in praise for him this morning and every day. So we saw on this point that God is worthy of our trust because he glorifies himself, and we are to glorify him as well in our praise. This self-glorification is tied to God's name and his way. This gives us the reason to praise God. With that, let's now move to our second main point. God is worthy of our trust because he satisfies our hearts. Let's read verses 4 through 8, followed by verses 14 through 15. Their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Then verses 14 through 15. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children, May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. So in contrast to the one true God, Yahweh, we make idols. The work of man's hands is idolatry. And this description of idols probably bored a few of us because of how repetitive it is, but that's the point. They have all the features of humanity, They have everything needed necessarily to speak, smell, walk, but they don't do anything. They sit there. Man creates them, yet proceeds to worship them. In Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 17, Isaiah gives a very humorous description of the futility of idolatry. This is Isaiah 44, 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it out with a compass. 
He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. He cuts down cedars or he even chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it, warms himself, kindles a fire and bakes bread, and also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest he makes into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. In other words, the same wood that made a fire, the same wood that warmed his food, is the same wood that he made an idol and worshipped. He planted the tree, he watered it, and he worships it. How foolish is that? Hamilton says in his commentary on the Psalms, the gods people idolize often seem more powerful than the psalmist exposes them to be. The temptation of power holds out the hope to do so much good, but those who make it their god inevitably experience its corruption and the viper they nurse turns to bite them. Money seems to have hands and feet, but it will often spread wings and fly away. Sex can be life-giving, but it makes an enslaving God. Those who worship it experience a continual lust for more. Idols are always fleeting, constantly capturing our attention, and while we are quick to point the finger at Israel, we have some serious soul-searching to do at this point. While it's not common for people to put their trust in a wood idol made out of a tree, we have our own paper idol of money made out of a tree. While it's not common to put, for people to put their ultimate trust in the work of their hands for good rain to yield crops, it's often com common for people to put their trust in the work of their hands for a paycheck each week. While it's not common for people to put their identity in the idol they worship, it is common for people to put their identity in a celebrity or cause that they worship. We are no different than these Old Testament times. Instead of making idols of wood or stone, we make idols out of reputation, work, money, power, sex, and more. We make these idols and bow down to their unforgiving, unrelenting commands of total submission and subjugation. Idolatry takes created things and makes them ultimate things. Idolatry takes created things and makes them ultimate things. Tim Keller says in his book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own sets of idols. Each has its own priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its sh shrines, office towers, spas, gyms, studios or stadiums where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement? But these same things have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and society. We may not physically bow before the statue of Aphrodite, 
but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business, gain more wealth and prestige. In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. So we might not have modern day temples, altars and idols, but our culture does. While our culture has its own idols, we can set that aside for a minute and look at our own idols, our church's idols. We here have the temple of religion, which demands a sacrifice of high amounts of self-discipline and works. It promises contentment, promises happiness, and a good, comfortable life. Instead of fulfilling its promises, we receive a low-grade sense of guilt, shame, sadness, isolation, you can never confess your sin to others for fear of judgment. You can't call out sins of others for fear of confrontation. And this temple of religion with these sacrifices damages a church and the idol is the idol of self. We pride ourselves on our religious vernacular, our long-winded prayers, our long list of Charles Spurgeon quotes, and idolatry can be so deceptive that it takes good, glorious things and turns them into a means of our own pride. We have the temple of Washington, D.C., which demands the sacrifice of your relationships and holiday dinners. It promises peaceful, easy, affluent lives. Instead of fulfilling its promises, it gives empty promises, scandals, and anxiety over the future. I would argue that our modern-day idols are more relentless and much more demanding because of the modern-day Asherah pole, the cell phone tower. It's constantly at your attention. Read another news article. Comment another argument. Answer another email. Post another picture. Seek another woman. Find another echo chamber. And before you know it, the idol has creeped into every corner, every thought, until all your time is in its unrelenting grip. And you have sacrificed every moment, every thought, every conversation, every family member, every dollar, every thought to this idol, and it still craves more. And whatever your idol is, you must find it and uproot it out of your life. Idolatry is when we take created things and make them ultimate things. The work of God's hands is creation. We worship the created things of this world over the creator. And if only we would remember verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Not to idols. To your name give glory. Instead of worshiping created things, we should devote our time, energy, and worship to the ultimate being, God. When your sacrifice does not measure up to the idol, it never relents and seeks more before it will fulfill its promises, but it never does. But if we were to remember God's promise of faithful, loyal love, if we would remember God's promise of grace, we would never turn back to idols because he does fulfill these promises. If we would remember the son's cross, 
If, if we would remember his empty tomb, if we would remember his resurrection, his intercession at the right hand of the Father right now, if we would remember his return, we would see more clearly the vanity of idolatry. God is worthy of praise. Trust in God, not in idols. Idols constantly demand a sacrifice, and it demands everything you have on its altar with no fulfillment, no joy, or satisfaction. But when we trust in God, the sacrifice has already been made. And he gives us all that we need. He gives us true delight and satisfaction, contentment, covenant love. God gives us grace when we don't give him our all. An idol will never give you grace. When we trust in God, he gives us the desire and power to serve him. An idol will never give you anything. God never lets you down. Idols will always let you down. God always leaves us whole, satisfied, and content. He always leaves us joyful and at peace. Seek Christ. Value him over all life can give and all death could take. But that's not the deadliest part of idols. The deadliest part of idols is not that they corrupt your life, hijack your relationships, or that they never relent. Do you remember verse 8? Those who make them become like them. The ultimate warning of idols, the ultimate danger of idols, is not anything that they make us do, but what they turn us into. The deadliest part of idols is that the more we worship them, the more we turn into them. Well, what does this look like? Well, the psalmist describes idols as unable to speak, see, hear, smell, feel. How do we end up like that? Well, this language is similar to Isaiah 6. And in that text, God is judging Israel for idolatry. And the prophecy Isaiah of Isaiah is that they would never turn back because seeing they will not see, hearing they would not hear. And here's what I think is going on. The more we worship idols the more we become spiritually imperceptive. The more we become calloused to God's word. The more we become hard-hearted to a sermon preached on Sunday. The more we ignore the loving correction of friends and family. Ultimately, idols will end up dead because of their spiritual imperception to their own judgment. And we will end up in the same place. Greg Beale provides a good summary for this truth. We will resemble what we revere for ruin or for restoration. So what's the solution? How do we fight and uproot idols out of our life? Well, the answer is in the second, uh, the second part of this section. Verse 14 through 15. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord. In other words, the context of this psalm is exile, and this blessing of Yahweh is tied back to earlier promises that God would never abandon his people, that God would always be their help and their shield. And for us today in the new covenant, how much more do we have these great promises? Jesus is coming back one day, 
And we will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth where the people of God will finally dwell together with him. And we know that Yahweh blesses us now through his covenant promises in Christ. But there is more to come. Why turn to idols when we have right now promises and greater comforts in the future in the gospel of Jesus Christ? However, this is not the only path to uprooting idols. Remember, we resemble what we revere for ruin or for restoration. If we revere, revere idols, it is for our ruin. If we worship and revere God, we can be restored. As we look to God, the creator of heaven and earth, we turn more into his image. We become more characterized as loving and faithful like God is. We worship and trust in God, and that makes us more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Instead of being conformed into the image of the idol, we can become conformed into the image of God. So we have two paths before us. If you want to give your life to idolatry and become calloused and spiritually imperceptive to the point of judgment in eternity in hell, or if you want to revere and worship God and conform to his image, be more softened, then the choice is before you. Jeff read Deuteronomy 30 this morning and presents a choice between life and death. And I say the same thing. Will you choose life in God where he will bless you with the new covenant promises? Or will you choose death in idols where you will be enslaved until you are sucked dry? With idols, you become spiritually dead, unfeeling, and worthy of judgment. The only path to freedom is firmly set in an event 2,000 years ago. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he gives us freedom from our idol worship and gifts us with freedom to worship God. It is an act, in this act of worship of beholding God that we become conformed into his image. Scripture teaches us that we look more like Jesus the more we gaze at his face. And how do we do that? Reading our Bibles every morning or every evening. Praying every day. Having times of fasting. The spiritual disciplines are where we see the glory of the risen sun. We will become more like Jesus when we have a deeper understanding of the gospel work that he accomplished. So we saw in this sermon that God is worthy of all trust because first he glorifies himself in his name and way. Second, he satisfies our hearts in a way idols never can. And now we will see that God is worthy of our trust because he blesses his people. He blesses his people. Let's read verses 9 through 13 together. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. So the center of our chiastic structure and centers typically reveal the main point, the big takeaway, the grand finale. And I've intentionally sprinkled it throughout this whole sermon. Trust in God, not in idols. And verses 9 through 11 give us a petition to trust. And verses 12 through 13 remind us why we can trust God. Because he remembers us and will bless us. So verses 9 through 11 provides a commission and command to trust in God. So I tell you, church, trust in God, not in idols. Children, trust in God, not in idols. Youth, trust in God, not in idols. Elderly, trust in God, not in idols. Why? Well, verse 9, 10, and 11 all say, God is their help and their shield. You notice another word pair is being formed. These two words occur together in only two places in the Old Testament. Psalm 33, but both Psalm 115 and Psalm Psalm 33 call back, I think, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Here's what it says. Blessed are you, O Israel, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of our help and the sword of our triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. In other words, God being a shield and help are intimately tied to God's saving grace of bringing Israel out of the exodus But more than that, bringing them through the wilderness. And more than that, treading the backs of the people in the promised land. And so the implication for us today in the new covenant is this. God conquers your idols. God helps you fight against idolatry. God helps shield your faith from ultimately crumbling. God, the merciful and gracious God, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. The God of scripture is eager willing to save you and pull you out of your idolatrous ways. And just like in the wanderings, the shoes of Israel never wore under their feet, God will keep you through this time on earth and bring you into the new and greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. He does this through the blood of Jesus. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have access to God again. And it is through the resurrection that the battle of sin is won. Jesus has treaded the back of sin, Satan, and death, and the same resurrection power is in us to slay idols, to kill sin. Trust in God, not in idols, because he always follows through as our help and our shield. But that's not all. He also remembered us. Think about those words in verse 12. Yahweh remembered us. Israel was in exile, suffering, doubting God's promises probably every day. 
wondering if they would ever end up back in the promised land. Yahweh remembered us, and he remembers you. God is always faithful to keep his promises. And in that remembering, he will bless us. Not with a lavish and great lifestyle, but the promises we have in Christ. That he will never leave us or forsake us. The promises that sin will ultimately be defeated. The promises that the Holy Spirit will continue to conform us into the image of Christ. These are the promises that we can cling to in all times and all struggles with idols or circumstances. God blesses us with these glorious truths. So, as we close this morning, the main point of application here is very simple, but profoundly difficult to apply. Trust in God, not in idols. We have great promises of hope, peace, contentment, grace, love, mercy when we put our trust in God. Who wouldn't want that? But we often, because we don't have the capacity to enjoy God in his fullness, turn to the fleeting pleasures of idols every day. This does not mean that life will be without struggle or life will be without suffering. This does, does mean that God is our help and shield in those times. We also have hope for future blessing when he returns. But if we put our trust in idols instead of God, they leave us empty, sad, yearning, searching, guilty, anxious, and more. And the key to uprooting idols in your life, as I said in the beginning of this sermon, is to have a higher view of God to study who God is in the scriptures. The way to uproot idols out of your life is to trust in God above all else. I've just finished Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and I couldn't state this application point better than he. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out. And all these restraints on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, and I'd include our idolatry. Even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge, he says, his restraint, or rather his restraint, simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Rather than only dispensing grace from the heavens, he gets down with us, puts his arm around us, and deals with us in the way that is just what we need. An idol will never do that for you. Only Jesus does. Let's pray. Lord, there is a lot to apply here in this sermon because idolatry is such a pervasive problem in our hearts. So Lord, I ask that you would help us love you more, 
that you would help us see and savor your gospel with greater clarity, that you would help us uproot idols as our help and shield. Lord, apply this sermon to each of us and help us grow into the image of your Son. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. The worship team is going to lead us in one song and then Bo will lead us in the Lord's Supper this morning.